I'm Carrie Brett, and this is Shot at Love. Today we have two special guests, Jim and Kim Bello. They've been married for 23 years, and they have the best love story I have ever heard. Their story is so incredible, it became a national news story. In this week's episode, we will discuss what love and marriage look like during COVID-19. Jim Bello is a husband, lawyer, and father of three. He spent 32 days fighting for his life on a ventilator. And when Jim's health took a turn for the worst, the hospital allowed his wife, Kim, to be by his side. Soon after Kim's visit, Jim became what Mass General Hospital calls its COVID miracle. When we come back, we'll be discussing sickness, health, and the healing power of love. You won't want to miss it, so stay tuned. Welcome, Jim and Kim. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us, Carrie. How are you feeling, Jim? I feel great. Thank you for asking. That's great. So before... We start. I want to give an overview of your journey this year. Jim Bellow, 49, was hiking the White Mountains in New Hampshire when he spiked a fever. He was one of Massachusetts' earliest cases and the first in the town we both grew up in. Jim was a healthy athlete with no pre-existing conditions, yet he was in the fight for his life within a week. His health continued to decline, nothing was working, and the results were not encouraging. As his team relayed this devastating information to his wife, Kim, she wasn't having it. She refused to believe that Jim wouldn't make it, and she got busy raising funds for the healthcare providers. The Bellows GoFundMe has raised over 50000 for meals and supplies for MGH in Boston, and they recently donated iPads for patients at the hospital so they can communicate with their families. Their story is beyond inspiring, and I honestly have no words for how impressed I am. Before you share your unbelievable story, I want people to get to know you, who you are as people and as a couple. Let's start with you, Jim. Uh-oh. Putting you in the hot seat, yep. buddy. <laughs> I have to say, in life, some people touch your life and make an impact. Jim Bellow is one of those people. Once Jim got home from the hospital, he declined all press coverage of his story because he's truly a private person. He wanted to focus on his family and adjust to this new normal, which I admire. I was reluctant to ask him knowing this about him. but you should have been. <laughs> and I'm still shocked you're here. Me too. <laughs> but we've been living in such a dark time with hardly any positive stories, and I thought their story could inspire others. Jim remains that same person with that same sense of humor, and he's here today because he's a loyal friend. And if his information can help someone else, he will show up. I just wanted to acknowledge that and say thank you while letting you know how much this means to me. So thank you, Jim. My pleasure. Happy to do it. Thank you. So that being said, we sure raised some hell, didn't we, while we were growing up in Hingham? Yeah, we had a pretty good time, Carrie. <laughs> no doubt about it. Probably stuff we shouldn't talk about on a podcast. <laughs> right. <laughs> So sometimes it's our earliest experiences that really shape our lives. In high school, we worked together at Bertucci's, and we would compete who could handle the most tables or flip tables the fastest during our lunch rushes. 
we've come a long way from slinging enchiladas and rigatoni, broccoli, and chicken, haven't we? We sure have. But I can still spin a pizza pretty good. So I my, kid, my kids were impressed with the fact that I can spin a pizza. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It gives you such makes you tough being a waitress or a waiter. Right. And that, and I don't know what the quota was, but however many rolls I had to do in a given five or ten minute period in order to cook them with a the rush coming in the door. Right. But we had some good times. We did. I was always <laughs> spotted because I always gave people way too many rolls and I was like chatting it up at all the tables <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and I would mix up things, but people would come back to be in my section and um, somehow I... I would get busted by a spotter, but I would never get caught. And you guys all knew it was me. But Oh, yeah, for sure. <laughs> Actually, my, my best recollections of Bertucci's was not what happened during the lunch and dinner shifts, but the after hours when the doors would close. <laughs> Again, probably things we shouldn't talk about on the podcast. <laughs> so before I ask you about falling in love with Kim and starting a family, I have to tell the story about the last um, TV show of Cheers because this finale part... This finale party that we went to is such a funny story. And then I promised to stop talking about memory lane. But I can't help myself because I, I am Frank the Tank and I love to live in the glory days. So it was circa 1993. And I had just left Keene State in New Hampshire. And I was getting ready to get hired at the Improper Bostonian, which was just like four blocks away from Cheers. And you were, were you going to New England? School of Law? I can't remember. So I think we figured that out. I think it was just before I started law school. Okay, so you were still at Bertucci's. Right. Yeah, I was still making rolls. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Still making the dough. Awesome. So over a million households tuned into the Cheers finale, and the numbers were so beyond the World Series or Super Bowls at the time. It seriously was the hottest ticket in town. So I remember we weren't allowed down to the actual Cheers part. And then the second level was where the party was, but all the stars of Cheers were on the third level. And somehow you got up to mm. the third level. And I'm sure Kim's shocked by God. that. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't know how we got up there, but like, you were like, Let, no, keep going, keep going. You just got to act like you belong. Yeah, you were like. That's the key. Right? And so I like look over and you're like having drinks with like Wade Boggs and Mike Dukakis. <laughs> Again, your memory is way better than mine. I don't know whether it's the drinks or the years, but it's far better than mine. And I was like, I can't believe like we're with, we're like in this library with all the, the stars of Cheers. And so uh, this emotional hour between 11 and 11.30, thousands and thousands of Bostonians and fans gathered across the street in the Boston Common. And my dad kept going up and down all the different flights. And he tells this story, and it's always so funny. He went back downstairs because he knew the stars would be eventually leaving the third mm -hmm. floor to go back to do the late show with Jay Leno. And my dad was probably thinking, all right, I'm going to try to get them a couple of these guys before they go down to the... the the cheers part and he gets to the streets and he sees thousands of thousands of people so he goes and photographs the screaming crowds meanwhile we're up standing next to ted danson and ted danson opens up the window and waves to the fans and jim and i are right there and my dad being at the right place at the right time is on the street and he gets the crowd cheering and he gets ted danson waving and he, in his mind, he's like, where is Carrie and Jim? Like, I haven't seen them all night. 
And then Jim's like, come on. So Ted waves, and the crowds are screaming, and then there's me and Jim. <laughs> is there a photograph of that that exists? I think my dad was shooting it, and he was like, well, there they are. Oh, we got to look for that one. Oh, my God, that is so funny. Is that the funniest yeah. story? So I had to bring that one up. But, Jim, back to you and Kim. How did you meet Kim? And I know you two have been through an awful lot the past 23 years. Tell me what it was like when you first met Kim, because I can remember when you first told me about her, you were smiling so big, literally beaming when you first told me about her. I guess we meet where everybody meets, on a cruise. (laughs) So I was uh, on a cruise, it would have been, what, January of 97, I think, right? Yeah. And I had taken a cruise with a bunch of my high school folks from around here. And uh, my first recollection is, what is that thing that you were doing there when you go under the bar? Oh, the... And um, and you got to... you got to get down low and crouch oh, under the bar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, oh, the, the limbo. limbo. The <laughs> limbo. So Kim was doing the limbo in, in, a, uh, in a bikini. Oh and I was looking down from above <laughs> on the Lido deck. And I said, well, she looks pretty cute. And then that night, she showed up in this stunning sequin dress. Oh, my God. I I'll never forget. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, so we met on the cruise. And uh, just I was living in uh, Western Massachusetts doing a clerkship at the time. And Kim was living down in Providence, and uh, we made it work. That's Started so a, nice. a long-distance relationship of about an hour, an hour and a half, of what it was. But, yeah. That's so that's nice. How it all started. So, Kim, even though I don't know you as well as Jim, but to have won Jim's heart, you're pretty special. And you showed everyone in our community what you were made of, the type of wife and mother you are when Jim got sick. You are so strong, and I always say anyone who can take a tragic situation, turn a negative into a positive, truly has superpowers. Kim, I think you're so resilient and amazing. I bet you're pretty grateful to have Jim back home. I am so grateful. You don't even know. Um, most thank of the, you most of the time. All of the time. <laughs> <laughs> All of the time, yes. It's, it's great to have him home. That's so nice. I'm so glad he is a COVID miracle. I really am. Thank God. Jim, can you tell us what happened when you first got sick? Things spiraled pretty fast from a fun weekend up in the White Mountains with your family. Um, so to start off, I guess, I started feeling sick. Uh, as you said, I, I did a, a hike with a good friend of mine up Loon Mountain, uh, where we have a place up there. And um, shortly after that, went to go grab a beer and typically that as is typical with our ski would lead to several beers but there was one beer and I was done so I knew something was wrong with me um, so then that night I spiked a fever and then uh, over the course I ended up driving home that was a Saturday if I recall correctly I drove home Sunday morning just to get home the kids were stayed up with Kim to ski for the day I think we had two cars if I recall mm-hmm. correctly yeah and uh, then over the course of the next week just Started to feel worse and worse. Initially, they thought it was a pneumonia and treated me for pneumonia. And then the next day, I went back in midweek and got some fluids, thinking that I was dehydrated. And um, then by Friday, I was pretty sick. So that's when I went to the hospital and kind of the rest of the story from there. Okay. So you were quickly transferred to Mass General, and you became the first incubated coronavirus patient. And they decided that you needed to be put on a ventilator. And the scene that was painted in the New York Times article is so nice and is why you two need a book and a movie with Reese Witherspoon playing Kim and Matt Damon playing Jim. Totally putting that out there. Yeah, I don't know. She's certainly Reese. I don't know about me and Matt Damon, but Reese Witherspoon would be great. Who would it be? Bradley Cooper? Oh, yeah, right. (laughs) Chris Christie. (laughs) So 
So this was such a, a you move, Jim. When I read this, my heart broke for the two of you and your kids. With your permission, I'm going to read these few lines from the article written by Pam Bellock. By March 13th, he had so much trouble breathing, he went to a suburban Boston hospital emergency room. The doctors quickly decided he needed a ventilator. What if I don't make it, he asked his wife. She assured him and recalled that he winked at me the same way he winked at me when we first met. And Jim, even though you were so afraid, and I'm sure you were afraid, you purposely winked so Kim wouldn't be. As sick as you were, you were still taking care of her. That's love. He was. Yeah, no, I remember that, actually. I Um, I wouldn't think you would forget that. No, I do. I remember sitting uh, at South Shore Hospital, or was at the time, and one of the things I remember most about that was right before they made the decision to intubate me, they asked if I wanted to call the kids, and I just couldn't do it. I figured, you know, I I thought at that point that it would be a couple days and I'd be home, but I just didn't have it in me to call them. As much as I love them, I just... To me, that's not like some, uh, I don't know, some degree or some message of finality that I was unwilling to accept. Exactly. I did um, not, you know, that, that came out and I didn't accept it. I think that might have put more pressure on you. Yeah, I mean, I, as I said, you know, I, I, at the time, I, I remember I asked the question, am I going to wake up? And they assured me that I would. Kim assured me that I would. And when I woke up, I said, why were you telling me that at the time? <laughs> no, that wasn't so clear cut at the time. But in any event, um, yeah, I just, I couldn't do it. I don't blame you. Yeah. And you're, you're very strong, Jim. I mean, you're, you always have been. I mean, you're very solid. And this was all so new. Like, we didn't know what was happening. And to be the first case and not knowing what to expect. And I don't even think Mass General knew what to expect. Yeah, no one knew what to expect. I mean, we got there and they didn't even treat him as a COVID patient. At the time, they were just getting the tests. They didn't even have tests that week. Um, So, you know, as soon as like the doors closed and the masks went on, we were like, whoa, we have COVID, you know. Um, It was kind of like a shocking moment for everyone there. You know, even the emergency room workers, they didn't, they didn't know how to handle it. They weren't prepared. I mean, I remember walking out of there after he was intubated in the emergency room, and and the one of the nurses ran after me and literally handed me a handful of masks. He's like, "Take these home with you," because wow. at that point they didn't have any anywhere. Right. Like they were right. running short already, um, and it hadn't even begun yet. Wow. I think we're going to take a short break, but when we come back. We're going to talk about handling challenging times during COVID-19 and the power of love and determination. And we're back with Kim and Jim Bello. Kim, take the listeners back. Jim is now on a ventilator. And when we took a short break, we were saying that, thank God he got to MGH. Thank God he got a bed. Thank God he got a ventilator. And all this was happening so fast Yeah, it was happening really fast. We didn't, you know, for me, I was, you know, alone. The kids were getting Chick-fil-A or whatever because we weren't home for dinner. I was trying to keep them as calm because they didn't know what was happening. And when I didn't come home with them, with him, I think he, you know, the kids were just a little bit like, what's going on with him, you know? And um, I said, it'll be all right. You know, we'll get through this. And they, you know, he's, got COVID and, you know, we'll, we'll do what we can to, um, keep busy. And at that point, school had just shut down. So they weren't going back to school and we were quarantined. 
So um, we um, just stuck together for two weeks and, you know, we had a schedule going with calling the hospital and talking to the staff and the nurses. And, you know, it's, it's hard to kind of go back to, you know, every day, but I feel like, you know, the first two weeks when we were quarantined, I feel like everything started shutting down. You know, so, um, but I felt so alone, you know, even though the kids were there, no one could be there, you know, and it was hard. It was hard. I'm Um, sure. And then word started to get out in the community and one of your friends made that video and I just felt so helpless. I just felt like, how can this be happening? And what, everyone felt that way. Everyone felt like, what can we do? And there wasn't like anything we could do because everyone was just quarantining in their house. We were just adjusting to, every every day, I remember that in the beginning of COVID-19, every day was different. Every day okay. was a different challenge. And I remember thinking, no matter what, like I was shocked, I was saddened, I was afraid, but I knew that Jim would be all right. Yeah, you know, the same for me. Like I, I always felt that, you know, this is just not happening to us at all and he's going to be okay and he'll get through it and every day I felt like it would get better but it got worse but you know the only thing that kept me going number one thank you to this community oh my god Hingham really really shined when I least expected it um, to be quite honest with you I didn't grow up here you know, a lot has changed over the years, but I have to say I respect the community so much more today than I ever have. Um, you know, the the help, the calls, the respect, the um, care they gave to our kids from sporting events like soccer teams where, you know, put candles out on the, on the lawn. And, you know, it was just so, that kept us going. That kept uh, me and the kids going, you know, until we had to kind of... Um, you know, take different steps to, to protect ourselves too. And people who, you know, were coming to the door and leaving food and, you know, we all didn't know, do we wash it? Do we spray it down? Do we, you know, leave it in the garage for a day? Like we didn't know what to do. Um, Right. I know it, we, we didn't know what to do. And so I felt like I had to do something and I was like, well, I can donate gift certificates to Jim's team. And I remember when I dropped them off at the front door when Jim came home, I I didn't even know if I could do that. You know, it was like, yeah. but I, I wanted to get them to you. And I remember I had like half like brown, half blonde hair, like no makeup on. <laughs> and I like pull up and I was just going to just drop the gift certificates and like run away. And um, Jim just like came to the door and he was like, hey. And once he came, he's like, what are you doing? And I'm like, I can't believe like you're home there. and and right. um and like people just got, started getting on bikes and getting into cars and like running out of their homes to to see and greet Jim. At that point, I was like, I'm definitely backing way into my car right now. But like, <laughs> it was amazing how many people just like ran to him and wanted to say like, I've been thinking about you. I've been praying for you. Like. It, this, I'm so sorry this happened to such a nice family. I mean, I think we collectively as a community just in those prayers and those high vibration that was put around him, I feel like mattered so Absolutely. much. Absolutely. Every, all the prayers and all like the kind words and, and just the emails and even the news stories, you know, I think, 
You know, they really um, portrayed what was happening. You know, they weren't fake. You know, this is really happening, you know, to this 49-year-old, no underlying conditions guy that's, you know, laying in the ICU fighting for his life. It's crazy. So Jim's now on a ventilator, and you find yourself temporarily losing the person that you've talked to 20 times a day, leaned on for 23 years, and you have three kids to take care of. But you found the strength that you never thought you had. What made you decide to go into overdrive and start supporting these healthcare workers? Because I don't think everyone would do that, Kim. I didn't know I would do it either. It's, you know, you you go into this um, kind of survival mode and, and you have to figure out what to do every day. Like you couldn't be at the hospital. I couldn't be by his side holding his hand, you know? So for me, I had to stay busy. And the only way that I could think about doing anything was, okay, well, who's helping him? You know, what do they need? You know, what's going to make it easier for them to be at work with him, with this virus happening and them all afraid too, you know? Um, So I think, you know, when that hit my head, I kind of just you know, went into full speed ahead and um, kept busy. And, and you know, Jim knows me very well. I, you know, I tend to take on more than I can. <laughs> but um, for me, it got me through everything. And um, it made me feel better. It made me feel like I was supporting something and, and I could give back. Um, I couldn't just sit there. Right. Just not that person. That's, that's excellent that you did that. And you kind of gave us all the blueprint or let's all rise up together and what what individual thing can I do? What What is it that I can do? Can I get a mask for a nurse that I know doesn't have one? Can I, um, and there were, you know, we were, what do we have for resources? Who has what? What can we get? Because we didn't have supplies. So that was the first thing I saw. And the other part of this incredible story is that these selfless doctors and nurses who bravely put their lives on the line, fighting as hard as possible to save you, Jim. I thought this was so powerful. And to quote the New York Times again, both Miss Volkel and Tyler Texera, a respiratory therapist, threw on protective gear and rushed in. We rescued him. We got him back, Miss Volkel said. This man, whose lungs are so bad we can't have him awake, so they had to re-paralyze him to essentially keep him alive. After the shift ended, Miss Vocal said, I cried the whole way home. She thought of the calls from Mr. Bellow's children, similar age to hers. And when I think about this, this doctor had children the same age as yours, and she was crying for you, Jim. And she wasn't crying for herself, who had children the same age as yours. And she risked her life every day to save others. And until you go through a situation like this, you really can't comprehend what these medical providers do and their importance. These medical workers are beyond heroes. They're beyond heroes. You know, we're still very close to them today. And, you know, I remember that day clearly. That was the day that, you know, I had to make the phone call to his parents in Florida and um, to his sister and to my mom. And, you know, that was the first day I collapsed. Oh, I... I, I mean, how much can you do? Well, I think, you know, when you get to the point where, like, he's going to get better, he goes through, like, bumps in the road, and um, then you come out, you know? You think, he's going to be okay. He's 49, you know? He can fight this, and and every day gets worse, and the nurses 
as much as they tried to, you know, say he's going to fight, he's doing better, he's, you know, his oxygen's up today, his oxygen's down a little bit, but it's okay. I never once felt like he was going to die until I asked the doctor that day. And it was um, two weeks into it, and I asked the doctor, I said, you know, you need to tell me straight up. I said, is he going to make it? And she said, I don't think so. And that's when I hit the ground. Yeah. But still never gave up. No, you didn't. Mm-hmm. And that's, and Jim was in there, you know, and I think this is where you become this unbelievable superhero. And so at this point, Jim's health starts to really deteriorate. And at one point, Jim's lungs were so completely whited out, there was literally no pockets of air. And that's when the doctor told you that most likely Jim wouldn't make it. And you were like, no. And they finally let you in and covered protective gear to see Jim. And that's when you worked your magic. And I believe, and I, I know it was your love that saved him. So if I'm on death's door, I'm going to request that you come visit me. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be there, Carrie. <laughs> I know. <laughs> so what happened? You went, you, you went in there and they, they said they were going to give you like 15 minutes. Yeah, you know, I stayed in there for almost four hours, and um, it was so sci-fi when I walked into the hospital. I was the only, only non-patient there. It was, it was incredible. It was like nine thirty at night on a Saturday night, and um, I remember walking in, and the halls were empty. And I got up there, and you know, I um, got to his room, and they put the protective gear on, and. Nurse Fred was there with him, and and Fred turned to Jim, and he hit Jim, and he goes, Jim, Kim's here. And I was like, did he just hear you? And he goes, of course he heard me. We talk all the time. And that kind of set the stage for that night for me. Um, It made me feel comfortable. It made me feel that I could talk to him about anything, everything, anything. Um, And he would hear me. So, you know, to say that they were his support there, you know, it it's an understatement. Like, they were so in tune to who he was. They had pictures everywhere on, this, on the walls, and they played his music, and so they know who, they knew who Jim was, right. you know? So that made a huge difference. And I know one of the stories that I read where you're watching him on face, on one of the iPads, and you could see his leg moved, and then your dog goes to get his Celtics hat. Oh, yeah. So that was, that was incredible. So that was the day that he woke up, and they took him off the paralytic. Okay. And he woke up for a brief moment, and the nurse said to him, uh, Carrie said, give me a thumbs up if you can hear me. And all of the doctors were standing outside the door. There was probably like a group of like 12, like staff and everything. And he turned and gave a thumbs up. And when the doctors saw that, they said, he's alive inside. He's so alive, like alive inside. We are going to do what we can to save this man. And that was the same day where he, you know, his oxygen dropped and they had to bring him back to life and put him back on the paralytic. But during that time... Our golden retriever, who's four, who never, like, never, mind you, grabs hats, nothing. He went upstairs to our room, 
grabbed his Celtics hat that was like on top of a bag and brought it downstairs in his mouth and was staring at us. And my mother-in-law was there, his mom, and my mom and my sister-in-law were there and just, we, we couldn't, we just took pictures because it was just so incredible. It's like, he knows, he knows, like, it's just, it was bizarre. I have a three-year-old dog and I was so moved by that story. I was like, that is incredible. Jim, what do you think about when you, like, do you remember, like, do you remember any of this or? No, it's actually, you know, I've heard this story or parts of this story, what, hundreds if not thousands of times over the last six or seven months. And still to me, it's surreal to know that this is a story about me. It's the only way I can describe it. I share Kim's sentiments about the healthcare workers and, you know, they truly are heroes. They, uh, they, they, went above and beyond and they continue to go above and beyond every single day and they you know they put their own lives at at risk in caring for other people and uh you know as i've said before you know they um this is such a nasty evil virus that continues to kill hundreds and thousands but at the same time this whole epidemic and this whole pandemic has shown people all the good that doctors and nurses and respiratory therapists and CNAs and every single medical provider, all they do on a daily basis. So I'm glad that it has shown a light on all that they do, all the good that they do for everyone. I do too. And I think the statement that you sent when you first got out of the hospital about the hospital, I thought was so powerful and how grateful you were for the care that you received. And it became your mission to, to shine a light on these medical professionals because they deserve to be recognized. And so you basically took the light that was kind of shining on you and went, no, <laughs> this is going back here. Sure. And, yeah, and it bo- deserved to be. Yeah, yeah. and yeah. both of you guys still um, are unbelievable. This episode of Shot of Love is brought to you by Akal Chai Rum. Akal Chai Rum is the world's first botanical rum. Recognized by the government of Trinidad and Tobago as having the first new production process for rum in over a century. Akal Chai Rum is an officially protected trade secret. Only the second such protected process in the Caribbean since the famed Angostura bitters by Don Carlos Siegert in the 1870s. Akal Chai Rum is available in 44 U.S. states on chairum.com. Also available in the Republic of Ireland on stuffyouneed.com. Try some today. Jim, when the news of you being in in the fight of your life, so many people wanted to do something to support your family, and they just didn't know what to do. And so I decided to pay it forward to the medical providers by donating family portraits. And when I dropped off this gift certificates to you. I had mentioned that my best friend had lived on the next street from you. And I said, you know, her dad was a famous doctor at MGH, but he had tragically drowned a year ago. And Kelly wanted, it was very important that she would find a way to honor her dad in the year of the one year anniversary. So she decided that she was going to run the Boston Marathon. And she was going to raise funds for the MGH Emergency Relief Fund because that was her heart. And one day she called me and she said, did you tell the Bellows about my fundraising efforts? And I said, no, but, you know, they pay attention to things that are happening in the community. And I said, I did mention 
what happened to your dad because they live on the next street. And she's like, well, they donated $1,000 to my fund. And we were both so blown away. And Kelly was successful in raising $15,000 because it's people like you and your generous spirit. And That's awesome. Well, that was so a no-brainer. Nice. I mean, I, I actually came across that on Facebook, if I recall. I mean, that was a no-brainer. I mean, I haven't talked to Kelly in, what, 35, 40 years, but to see... I, I knew her dad, and I knew his reputation, and he was a remarkable guy. And to see the fact that she was going to raise money in honor of both her dad and, and MGH, which obviously has a special place in our hearts, uh, that was a no-brainer. So we were happy to help out, and it's nice. You know, we not only do that, but um, we got an opportunity to reconnect with Kelly after all those years, which was yeah. great, too. Yeah, so, so nice. Yeah. And, I mean, Dr. Doyle was the best, and he worked at MGH for 45 years. Unbelievable. And, I mean, he would have been right in there helping people. He was his true healer in every sense of, of the word. And it's so nice that even though it's a horrific situation with you getting COVID, Jim, but I've been able to reconnect with you and Kelly's been able to, and I'm sure there's plenty of other people in the community that. Oh yeah, no doubt. I mean, yeah. that was the amazing thing. You know, you try to look for the positives and the, certainly one of the positives that came out of this entire thing was, um, and really some, you know, you, you know, when I got out of the hospital, when I got out of Spalding and came back, I'll, I'll never forget sitting on the couch oh my God, um, no. and looking at the names, the sheer number, but the names of all of the people that had sent cards and messages and donations. And I think I went through a list of 750 people that first time that I looked at the list and I was just blown away. And, you know, it's amazing because, you know, living in a community like this, which I, again, I share Kim's sentiments and how wonderful of community we, we live in, but, you know, you have your, your, you have your Hingham friends and you have your college friends and you have your law school friends and, you know, you have your soccer friends through the soccer club, and then we, you know, go up to Loon all the time. We have our Loon friends, and we weave such a large web, uh, a, a wide web, and to see all those people come together at a time of need was truly humbling and just remarkable. It was awesome. Yeah. Great. It really was. And you saw the best of humanity and the worst. You know, you really for did. Sure. And yeah, for sure. And you saw people's true intentions. And boy, Jim, you know, I know you never wanted some of these videos where you got so much attention. And I'll tell you a funny story about that. Are you allowed to swear on a podcast? Oh, you can do it. Hey. So I'll tell you a funny story about that. So Wait, as what? you know, Carrie, despite doing the podcast, I'm a pretty private person by nature. So I'll, I, uh, and this is one of my favorite stories. So oh, when I got to Spalding, I, I don't have a lot of clear memories of everything that happened at MGH because you know, when you're in a coma, you're sedated, and that it takes quite a while for the sedatives to reverse. So my memories really pick up. I have some memories and probably a lot of hallucinations of MGH, but when I got to Spalding, um, the first thing I remember is looking at the calendar on the wall and seeing that it was April, and I was clearly blown away by that, having gone into the mm. hospital in March. Wow. But the second thing that I remember is it was the first day I was there. I got there mid-afternoon, and my roommate, Harold, a nice, <laughs> nice guy, who was in the bed next to me with a half a curtain between the two of us. And as you can probably imagine, anybody that's been in a hospital, you have those TVs uh, up on the wall. He's got a TV and I got a TV. And I think it was on one of the news channels. And Harold, I really wasn't paying attention to And Harold looks at me and says, wait, look up at the TV. And I look up at the TV. He goes, that's you. I said, what the fuck? <laughs> I said, what has my wife done? And that was the first time I had any indication that there had been any media coverage. I couldn't And then, tell. oh yeah, she couldn't tell me. And then so I called her and I said, Kim, you got something to tell me? She says, yeah, well, 
yeah, there's been a little bit of news coverage. And she says, one other thing I got to tell you. And I said, what's that? She goes, well, the New York Times might be calling you too. Oh, yeah. Wow. yeah. Oh, so that was quite an well, eye-opener for I me. I thought he was still drugged up, so I didn't really know. <laughs> well, they did a really nice job in that New York Times story. They did a great really job. Really well-written. Well-written and um, that powerful. Was, that was very powerful. And it really told, updated people on what was happening, what had happened. Mm -hmm. And the video of Jim being wheeled out and him waving and all the doctors and nurses clapping and lining up, it became way bigger than you, Jim Bellow. You know what I mean? Jim told me last night that 40,000 people looked at that. I had no idea. Yeah, like 40,000. Wow. Well, and and that's kind of the way I felt about it. Again, I had a lot of reluctance about it. Um, but my feeling at the time was is that if it shines a light on COVID and, you know, keeps somebody else safe and people take precautions as a result of my situation, you know, again, it's all good by me. Right. And when you ever could see those nurses and the people, these medical providers sobbing, yeah. you know, know. sobbing know. for someone that they didn't really know. But I guess they did know. I mean. Well, they knew me through Kim. Right. Yeah. That's what it's all about. Yeah. Right. And your ability to be like, not on my watch. Nope. He is going to make it. And there was no possible way he was leaving me. No. I always said, like, you know, you know, what I do well, he doesn't. And what he does well, I don't. There's no way that we could split up. Oh. You know? And I can see that. I can see that from just your emails. Like, I can see who does you know, yeah, there's just certain things that we've grown to to know over the years, you know, and respect each other for, um, you know, and that takes more than 20 years. Right. Well, it is, like I said, the most beautiful love story, and I think in sickness or in health that you have got to find someone who is going to be your advocate, not going to leave your side. And like you said, the New York Times might be calling. You know, you didn't know how he'd handle that, but it it became bigger than than Jim and you. You know. Well, you know, it's funny. I've I've been sitting here listening to the two of you talk, and (laughs) which is fine because really, I don't really have much of a memory of it anyway, as it should be. But I think the reality is, and this will go to your, you know, the, the shot at love podcast, is that as I thought about what I went through, you know, it really is a lot like a marriage in some respects, in the sense that you know. Things look good, then they don't look good. Things look good, they don't look good. You're not going to make it. You're going to die. Right. You live. And, and I think the lesson there is you just got to keep fighting. Just keep fighting through it. Yeah, you got to just keep trying. You and just got to keep trying and don't give up. And be, be so grateful. Every day I wake up and he's next to me, mm. it's a good day. Honestly, now, yeah. I mean, you not know. Not every day is a good day, most days. No, but when you go, you know, you go yeah. and do your own like little getaways and nights here and there and you're like, yes. He's gone for the night. You know? <laughs> and you still will do that. But now it's, you know, when you don't have someone who's been by your side, literally by your side for right. 23 years, and they're gone for 32 days, and then they're back, you really have a different perspective on life, no matter what. It's, you know, every day I wake up and, and I say to myself, you know, I've woken up with a smile every day since he's been home. Well, there's a nice gift from the... There's a silver lining from all of the hell that you guys went through. And in life, there are good days and bad days. And this pandemic has changed each and every one of us 
And so much for the two of you. Jim, has your perspective changed about life or have you reprioritized your bucket list? <laughs> yeah, there's a lot on my bucket list that unfortunately, as a result of COVID, we can't do right now. <laughs> right. So my bucket list is there. Um, yeah, no, for sure, Carrie. I mean, I think that there is a silver lining in this entire thing. And I think you do reprioritize what is important in life. I think that, as you said, you know, certainly the silver lining in all of this is the fact that, you know, that, that the pace of life to some extent and work and everything has slowed down. So you've had an opportunity really to spend more time with your kids um, and your family. And listen, you know, it's, it's easy. What I've come to realize too, is that it is easy to lose sight of that. You know, you get, you know, I, I'm an attorney and I have high pressure situations and, and a difficult job at times. And, you know, you do your best to try to keep everything in perspective. And I'll tell you, there have been days where I felt like that that is getting away and those are the days that I, and I haven't done it a lot, but those are the days that I might look at that New York Times article or I might pull up that video to remind myself of how lucky I am and the need to, um, you know, keep perspective. That's great. Yeah, I mean, at this point, you have that. It's like that happened. That's, that's I know it feels like a movie sometimes and that mm-hmm. you can't believe that this really did happen to you guys, but that will shape you and change you forever. For sure, definitely. And feel the same. Your relationship truly exemplifies what a married couple should be. And incredibly, you gave back to your community during the most challenging time in your life. And that proves that the world is truly a great place. Thank you so much for sharing your story today. Our pleasure. Thanks for having us, Carrie. Thanks, Carrie. Do you guys have any updates of the um, Bellow GoFundMe or any plans for the future that you'd like to share or where people can find you or not really? No, I mean, you know, we still are um, um, sitting on some money in our quote-unquote foundation that we have that we're going to give back to MGH at the right time. And as I, you know, we look for the right opportunities to give back to healthcare providers, to give back to the community. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm excited about the fact that I'm going to be getting together with, um, you know, one of the doctors who was my primary care provider in the near future to have a drink or two with him. And and I think when all of this calms down, you know, we'll get together with everybody at MGH and, you know, give them the check and they can put it to use the way they see fit. Yeah, absolutely. Things are getting worse again. We need to do our best to, to stay, stay strong. Right. Well, Jim, again, I'm still surprised you're here. <laughs> Talk about a dream. <laughs> Talk about a dream. <laughs> but I'm so glad you are MGH COVID miracle. And I know you're so very proud of your wife, Kim. Very. She's incredible. She's a warrior. She's That's the word that I used when I got out of the hospital is that she's a warrior. And uh, you're right, Carrie. If, God forbid, you're in a similar situation, you want that warrior fighting for you. You do. I love you. And behind every strong man is a strong woman. And that Absolutely. is that is you, Kim. I can't tell you how much I appreciate both of you guys being here today. Thanks. Thanks, Carrie. Thanks. And for now, this week's Tinder Tips. Number one, always lead with a generous spirit. Look for ways to share and look for ways to give. What you give comes back to you tenfold. Number two, stay away from toxic relationships. You are not healing them. They are making you sick. When looking for relationships, focus on creating a healthy one. Number three, Sometimes you have to fight through some bad days to earn the best days of your life.
This is what Shot at Love is here for, to help you find love. Keep up the commitment to yourself and commit to helping someone else by sharing this podcast. Remember to stay safe and stay tuned for more episodes. And if you like this show, please leave a five-star review. I'm Carrie Brett, and we'll see you next time.